Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think that there's a wide, fertile ground out there for a Democratic nominee to ignore Trump and just talk about what America is. Not how great it can become, not how great it was, but how great it is. That's former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. I speak with him about his long career in the Senate, keeping control of an unruly caucus, and that time he put a mobster in a chokehold. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. Throughout the past year, you've heard me talk about the ups and downs of writing a book. You've been here the whole time on this often arduous journey. So join me in the final steps and pre-order your own copy of This Labor of Love at doingjusticebook.com. Actually, maybe it's a good Valentine's Day present for the people in your life who love justice. You'll find various options, whether you need your two-day shipping or want it from your favorite local independent bookseller. And for those of you who become accustomed to my voice in your ear, there is an audiobook. Order now at doingjusticebook.com and the book or audiobook will be on its way to you this March 19th. Okay, let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter from user B. Lanson at blanson100, who makes reference to a New York Times article that's entitled Trump Inaugural Committee Ordered to Hand Over Documents to Federal Investigators by Maggie Haberman and Ben Protest. And the tweet simply says, please pod this, hashtag askpreet. Interesting use of the verb pod. So I guess what you mean is, could you explain what the hell is going on with this article? So first, if you haven't seen it, it's an article that talks about a subpoena issued by a grand jury in connection with a Southern District of New York investigation, my old office, into perhaps misconduct or bad behavior or fraud or other kinds of things having to do with President Trump's inaugural committee. Uh, Just to read one paragraph from the article, which sort of summarizes what the subpoena is looking for, the New York Times says the following. The subpoena seeks documents related to all of the committee's donors and guests, any benefits handed out, including tickets and photo opportunities with the president, federal disclosure filings, vendors, contracts, and more, one of the people said, one of the people familiar with the inquiry. So a couple of things off the bat. First, it's a broad subpoena, as commentators have been saying. So I think that's interesting, but not crazy interesting. At the beginning of an investigation, when you don't know where the trails will lead, when you don't know what the violations might ultimately uh, be, because you don't have all the evidence yet, you generally issue a fairly broad subpoena. You want to make sure that you have everything. You want to make sure that the recipient of the subpoena, in this case, inaugural committee officials, don't have some excuse to say, well, you didn't ask for that because you only asked for this. So you want to you know, have a broad, I think, ambit for your subpoena. It doesn't mean, by the way, that anyone necessarily committed a crime. It doesn't mean that prosecutors in the Southern District are pretty certain that any particular person, including the committee itself, committed any crime. It's, it's possible, quite frankly, that in some ways the committee could be the victim of a crime. 
because it looks like there are reports of self-dealing, of exorbitant fees being charged to the committee by people who had some relationship with the president, uh, and maybe they got milked. It's also possible, given other reporting, and especially reporting in this article, that there are people on the committee who have committed crimes or suspected of committing crimes. The possibilities are, based on the article, of the kinds of crimes that I expect prosecutors will be looking at are illegal foreign donations. If you're a foreign national, you're not allowed to contribute to a campaign, nor are you allowed to contribute to an inaugural committee. And then the question will become, not only was it unlawful for some outside foreign entity or person to have contributed to the inaugural committee, but did the inaugural committee itself knowingly accept such funds, in which case they might be guilty of a crime too. And the the particular request, according to the article, that's interesting to me in this regard is that the prosecutors are clearly looking for information to show knowledge on the part of the folks on the inaugural committee. And sometimes, you know, people can say, well, I didn't know what the source of the money was. We didn't check people's backgrounds as carefully as we we might have. But the article says that one of the things prosecutors are asking for are documents laying out legal requirements for donations. So the, the theory, I guess, would be if the inaugural committee had in its files documents that made it clear what the parameters were and that people were being trained on that, it's much harder to say we didn't know that Saudi Arabian officials or Saudi Arabian citizens or Russian citizens couldn't donate to the inaugural committee. So it goes to what the people's knowledge was. Another interesting question to me is what set the Southern District on this path? You know, the inauguration was over two years ago, and there had been rumors about issues relating to the inaugural committee based on reporting in various outlets. I know that they have begun, based on other reporting, uh, some investigation with respect to the inaugural committee some months ago, but a lot of time has passed, and you wonder if one of the triggers was Michael Cohen's cooperation. Now, we know that Michael Cohen did not get a signed cooperation agreement with the Southern District of New York because they didn't think he was a worthwhile cooperator in that regard, but he did spend hours and hours, both with Southern District prosecutors and also with the special counsel's lawyers as well, and nothing prevents the Southern District from pursuing things that they were told about by Michael Cohen, even if they think he's not worthy of a cooperation benefit. So interesting to think as the story unfolds, what prompted the subpoena at this time, but it's too early to say where it will go. And take, you know, perhaps with a grain of salt, based on my parochial pride, having overseen that office for a while, it's an independent place. And this investigation is not going anywhere. And it may not go anywhere because the facts and law may not ultimately support it, but but that's separate from whether or not some outside force can put the kibosh on. I think that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Governor Christie himself, in promoting his book over the last few days, has said words to this effect. The ambit of the special counsel's jurisdiction is fairly circumscribed. It's narrow and is directed towards interference in the 2016 election and other things that may arise from the course of the investigation, whereas the Southern District of New York can investigate anything. I think that the president and others, members of the campaign, people in the inaugural committee, would be hard-pressed to complain that it's a political investigation, because we never did those things in the first place, but also because the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York was handpicked by President Donald Trump himself. So that office operates independently, and they'll follow the facts and apply the law, and they will check every box and, to choose another metaphor, you know, turn over every rock, because that's what they do. Hi, Preet. I love your show. My name's Louisa. I'm from New York City. I'm calling just with a question that I hope you could address about judicial retirement from the federal bench, where a judge is very young. For example, I'm thinking of Catherine Forrest, who 
uh, to my surprise, having been appointed by President Obama and learned that she had returned to private practice. I would be interested if you could address why judges retire early. Judges don't get a lot of attention. They don't typically become famous, and what they do is extremely important, and they're so very different from one another. So thanks a lot. Bye. Uh, Hey, Louise, thanks for your question. It's a good one, and there's no standard answer. It depends on the person. You know, some people stay in jobs forever. Some people like to switch jobs. There are judges who come to the bench early and serve for a number of years and leave for private practice. You know, federal judges actually make a very good salary, you know, in the broad scheme of things. But if you're living in Manhattan or you're living in Washington, D.C. or some other places, the opportunity cost for some lawyers who become judges is high. And they could make, you know, 10, literally 10 to 20 times the amount of money in private practice. It can be a little lonely, depending on what court you're on, if it's the district court level, the trial court level versus the appeals level, you don't have as big of a peer group. And sometimes people like, you know, to leave for that reason. Sometimes people have changed family circumstances. And sometimes people just don't like to do the same thing for a long period of time. I agree with you that the work of federal judges is incredibly important. And one of the reasons that they can do the job they do, and one of the reasons that they can be independent and withstand political wins and pressure from politicians, even up to the president, is that the Constitution gives them a lifetime appointment. Now, whether or not people seize that lifetime appointment is another thing. I will say, by the way, that on the flip side of your question as to why some judges leave early, there's a a different question, which is, why do some judges stay till the bitter end? We sometimes see that with the Supreme Court, which is the choicest appointment you can have to a federal court anywhere in the country, obviously. And, you know, there are judges who spend, I think, a few too many years, and I had that experience as well. It's all up to the individual judges. By the way, the, the incidence of federal judges who are life-tenured leaving the bench before they're done, before they're ready for full retirement, is pretty rare. Although it happens more than it happens at the Supreme Court level, and maybe the reason for that is at the trial court level, you know, one judge is important, but one judge doesn't make all the difference in the world because there are other judges. In the Southern District of New York, for example, there are dozens of trial judges. And you see all the speculation about whether or not Ruth Bader Ginsburg will retire, and there was reporting that Justice Kennedy... Uh, waited to retire until he felt comfortable that the replacement would be somebody he would be sort of hospitable to and would sort of walk in his shoes. Because at that level, who makes the replacement appointment matters, whether it's uh, you know President Trump or the next president. That consideration applies a little bit less in the thinking of people who are on the district court level or the trial court. You know, who a judge is matters. And people have different personalities and different interests and different issues in their lives. And that will determine how long they stay. Thanks for your question. This next question comes from a tweet from Barbara Lambert, who says, hashtag AskPreet, since one has the right to a speedy trial, how might it be advantageous for a defendant to waive that right? I'm thinking about Stone's attorney agreeing to waive the right so that the prosecutors can go through all the seized evidence. Seems counterintuitive. Barbara, thanks for your question. So there are lots of reasons why one side or the other might want to proceed more quickly or less quickly. Sometimes it depends on the, on the state of preparation of the one side or the other. The, the phrase in my old office, whether it was tr- true or not, was the government is always ready. And we always tried to present ourselves in court, uh, not always, but tried, to say at the first appearance, you know, we can proceed as quickly as the court wants because presumably you've done all your investigating and you have all your ducks in a row. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been indicted the case. Now, in practice, that wasn't, I will share a secret with you, was not always completely true. Sometimes you arrested someone on a criminal complaint because you had to, because they were going to flee or because uh, the investigation was going to become public. 
and you maybe wanted to do a little bit more, and sometimes you have to do some of that additional investigation and chase down other leads even after you make the arrest, which is why sometimes you arrest someone on a criminal complaint as opposed to an indictment and not to get too legalistic. It's the indictment that starts the running of the speedy trial clock in federal court, even though there are other time limits also on how long someone can be in custody or under arrest under a criminal complaint. So that said, sometimes it's in the defendant's interest to be able to prepare properly for a defense to take more time. And so sometimes the speedy trial clock gets told at the request of the defendant. The defendant wants to have the opportunity to review discovery, particularly if it's voluminous, figure out what motions he or she might want to make. And sometimes that can take a while. Sometimes they want to hire experts. So depending on the extensiveness of the discovery, defendants want to be able to review it. And you might sometimes say, well, if it's material from the defendant himself, what's the need for that? Well, a cautious lawyer and a smart lawyer knows that he or she might not get the full accounting of what is in that material directly from the defendant. And in this case, I think there are multiple terabytes of information that the government has declared that it has seized because the special counsel's office did a number of searches of residences of Roger Stone and obtained devices as well. And Roger Stone himself has said, whether you believe him or not, he said he's never deleted anything. He's kept everything. So the amount of material is going to be very large and it's not necessarily unwise for his lawyers to say they want to delay so they can put in the time and effort to reviewing everything to mount the most careful defense that they can. On the other hand, there's sometimes people who want to go directly to trial, sometimes political officials who have been charged. This was true in the Ted Stevens case, the former senator from Alaska, want to go to trial right away to clear their name. And, you know, they'll take their chances on not having quite as much time to review discovery or to come up with their best motions because they have an interest in lifting the cloud as quickly as possible. And there's another reason also, which is sometimes just a dependent on a particular person's psychology. Some people like to delay the moment of reckoning. So for a defendant who's facing trial, uh, if you're out on bail, you're lucky enough to be out on bail, the longer that the trial is put off, the more you have the opportunity to walk around free and to breathe you know, the free air in the world as opposed to being in custody. Now, people who are actually uh, in custody, so you're you're in jail pending trial, they tend to want to go to trial more quickly. If you're worried that you're going to get convicted, you know, there's some people who want to get it over with, serve their time and get out. People who tend to be a little bit older, in my experience, sometimes are not in any rush to go to trial, get convicted and go to prison. So one or more of those considerations could be in the minds of Roger Stone and his attorney, but impossible for me to say. My guest this week is the former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, who reflected on his long career in public service and what a remarkable career it's been. He was born into a poor family, moonlighted as a security guard on Capitol Hill during law school, and returned years later as a Democratic congressman for Nevada. He went on to spend decades in the Senate and led the Democratic caucus through some very tumultuous years. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2018. I'm really honored that he took the time to speak with me last week. We look back at the presidents he worked with, how he kept his party in line, and how he flipped the Senate from Republican to Democrat in 2006. And we look ahead to the 2020 race and America's place in the world. That's coming up. Stay tuned. By now, most of us have started racking our brains about what Valentine's gift is truly going to make your loved one's day special. With 1-800-Flowers.com, it's really not that complicated. 
Roses from 1-800-Flowers are a no-brainer. Right now, when you order early, 1-800-Flowers has amazing deals on vibrant and romantic Valentine's rose bouquets, arrangements, and more, starting at just $29.99. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness and the amazement of whoever you're giving them to. And 1-800-Flowers isn't just roses. They have chocolate-dipped strawberries, fruit bouquets, lilies, orchids, even bamboo plants in the shape of a heart, something I didn't even know existed. Check out their site and find something for the special someone in your life. Their gorgeous Valentine's bouquets and arrangements start at $29.99, so take advantage today. Pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. To order, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code PREET. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code PREET. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Both online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, including a lot of things we cover here on Stay Tuned. Politics, news, international affairs. Not to mention, The New Yorker touches on subjects that you've probably never thought about, like the world's diminishing supply of sand, or paper jams, or stink bugs. Some of The New Yorker's incredible writers include contributors like Ronan Farrow, a former guest on the show, who's broken big stories in Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves. We've also talked to Jane Mayer about Brett Kavanaugh and Jeff Tubin about Trump and the law. And now, our listeners can save 50% and get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 when you go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter preet. You'll also get an exclusive tote, as well as unlimited access to The New Yorker's apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and newyorker.com, with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. That's newyorker.com slash preet and enter Preet. As many of you know, we recently launched Cafe Insider. It's a subscription service to help you make sense of what's happening. We're living through historic times, and Insider is an opportunity to gain deep understanding of the most pressing issues at the intersection of law and politics. Every Monday, Anne Milgram joins me for the Cafe Insider podcast, where we break down the latest headlines and answer your questions. We all know there's more news to come. Mueller's investigation, congressional hearings, and the impending presidential campaign. So we hope you'll join us as an insider on what promises to be a wild ride. Rest assured, the Stay Tuned podcast will continue to be free, but the Cafe Insider membership service allows you to support our work so we can keep doing what we do. So go to cafe.com insider to become a member today. That's cafe.com insider. Senator Reid, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a real honor for me. Look forward to this. I know we haven't met and had long conversations, but of course we worked in the same building and we've all had some influence of the senator from New York, Senator Schumer. Oh, we have. So I feel feel like I know you very, very well. It's a real treat for me given that 14 years ago, almost to the day, I started as a staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee as chief counsel to Senator Schumer. And you were the Democratic leader at the time. And, uh, you know, it's hard to forget the first time you sit in the leader's office in the Capitol, uh, and you were there, and Senator Schumer, and I think Senator Durbin and and a couple of others, talking about whatever issue of the day. And if you're a a young lawyer sitting in a room like that for the first time, you kind of had to pinch yourself. So, (laughs) Well, I I usually had with me Durbin, Schumer, and Murray. Right. Each of the senators often had one staff member, and you had your chief counsel often, Ron Weich, who became yep. a very good friend of mine. Dean of a law school now. 
and it and it seems like yesterday. Anyway, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to be able to visit with you for a while. I'm ready to go. So I'm going to start with something, a very difficult question. You ready? You bet. What is the correct way to pronounce the name of your home state? I know people get trouble because they say Nevada, but I always tell people, don't worry about it. A lawyer by the name of Neil Gallitz was a trial lawyer, and he won millions and millions and millions of dollars talking to Nevada juries, and he never said anything other than Nevada. So my point is, it's spelled N-E-V-A-D-A. It means snow-capped, and it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. But if you want it to be technically correct, you would go in Nevada. Well, not technically correct. It's just Nevadans like it better. Right, okay. Uh, and, and, how, and how are you? I'm doing fine. Good. That's excellent to hear. You've had a fascinating life, and not everyone may know your history and your early days and your youth. So I want to talk about that a little bit, your biography. Sure. You wrote a book called The Good Fight, Hard Lessons from Searchlight to Washington. So Searchlight, Nevada is your hometown. And uh, you were born not into riches, were you? No, not really. Uh, I wasn't, no. But um, at the time growing up, I didn't feel I was poor. It wasn't until I was an adult and my brother passed away at a very young age, his daughter was going through some pictures that her dad had, and some of them had me in them. And I looked at that some of those pictures. I couldn't believe I was raised in that. I mean, I couldn't believe, I could repeat for the second time, what a squalor it was. I mean, gee whiz, I looked at that house and where I was raised, I little wooden steps going up to the front door, and it was pretty bad, and I didn't realize it until I was an adult. Maybe I didn't have it so good as a kid. And what did your father do? My dad was a hard rock miner, but by the time, during World War II, when I was a little little tiny boy, mining ceased because of the war. And then after that, there wasn't much. The number one business in Searchlight, as I was growing up, was prostitution. Uh, there were as many as 13 brothels at one time. This politically incorrect word today, um, they were all referred to as the girls. They were prostitutes. And that's what Searchlight was all about. On payday for the military bases, Searchlight was very, very busy. Cars coming <laughs> all over and some in uniform. Anyway, so that's... What, what did you make of that as a kid? It meant nothing to me at the time. I thought every place had bordellos. I didn't know. But, <laughs> but I have one distinction, that no one no one who's ever held a seat in the United States Senate or probably any other political seat can claim. I learned to swim in a whorehouse swimming pool. I was uh, <laughs> the man, his name was Willie Martello. He was the, had the biggest bordello in Searchlight, and he built a, the only swimming pool in Searchlight. It was very, very nice. And that's where I learned to swim. And how about your mother? What did she do? My mother took in wash. It's easy to figure out whose wash she did. She did work for the dealers and some of the ladies of the evening. Do you ever wonder if your political view and or your career might have been different had you been born into wealth? For me, being a person who loved the labor unions, loved the fact that people need to organize, um, that was just who I was. So I've always kind of identified with that part of my existence rather than uh, I lived in the Ritz Hotel in Washington. I was uh, 
always very happy that I could tell people that I had some money because I was raised with nothing. And I was so fortunate. I was a brand new lawyer, and one of the very prominent lawyers in the history of Nevada was a guy by the name of Louis Weiner, Louis Weiner. He walked in holding court, so to speak, and he looked at me as a new guy, and he said, listen, young man, here's what I'm telling you what you should do, is invest only in undeveloped real estate. And these are his exact words. You can piss on it as much as you want. It doesn't matter, because all you have to do is pay the taxes. And I took him at his word. And so I started investing $50 a month, and I was able to put my kids all through school, all five of them. I feel very fortunate. You did not grow up in a religious household. You once said it wasn't the case that there was just a little bit of religion. There was not even 10% religion. It just wasn't part of, of life. But then you found religion in college. I left home when I was about 13 and lived with people. And uh, I had the good fortune of being befriended by some very nice people. I was a kid from Searchlight that had clothes ordered from catalog at Sears and Roebuck. But people were nice to me. People were the nicest to me were some of the big shots in the school, and they were Mormons, most of them. I always say the most important election I ever had was a, as a junior in high school. I was elected junior class treasurer. Now, that may sound like a bunch of nothing to people listening here, but for me, this young kid from Searchlight, I felt that I had been finally accepted by my peers. They elected me to an office. That was a milestone in my life with my background. How did you win? I've never, um, all my political success has never been based on my good looks. My oratory beats the hell out of me, but I won. And then your transition to to being a religious person and converting to Mormonism? Well, um, when I was a freshman in high school, this Mormon boy said, why don't you come with me in these early morning meetings? It's called seminary. He said that a lot of good-looking girls there and only last, <laughs> lasts less than an hour. So I went with him. So anyway, I went away to college, Utah State University. Landon and I married between my sophomore and junior in college, and we found the church to be something that was good for us. I'm satisfied with the religious change that I made as a young man. Another thing happened as well, and maybe this was the result of your successful candidacy in high school politics, you entered politics pretty young. I, as soon as I got out of law school, I was appoint, appointed, not an elective job, appointed city attorney for the city of Henderson, Nevada. Two years of that job, some people came to me and they said, county hospital is corrupt, we want you to run. So I won the election. And then two years later, I decided to run for the assembly. At that time, they elected 18 in the primary. Can you imagine that? We hadn't had reapportionment. Sounds like the Democratic race for 2020. Yeah, that's right, on the Democratic <laughs> side. So I won. And you're right, I was young, had a lot of ideas. I introduced the first pollution legislation, first gun control legislation, which haunted me a lot during my career, but I did it. And then I decided, okay, I'll run for lieutenant governor was elected lieutenant governor. I was very, very young. You were 30, right? Yeah, that's right. I was then appointed with my friend Michael Callahan, who was my high school teacher and my mentor. He appointed me to the Nevada State Gaming Commission, which was a very, very interesting time. Can I ask you a couple of questions about that early life? Because you have said 
that one of the things that got you into politics was other people's rudeness. Yeah, that's true. That's that's actually why I ran for that's why I ran for the hospital board. So you go in the hospital and they're just obnoxious to you and said they said No, here I went in there, I was representing a guy by the name of Dr. Thomas Newman. They had some administrative thing against him. And I went in there with a senior partner of my little law firm. They actually this is actually what Dr. Madsen said. The guy eventually beat. He said we don't need lawyers here. We do what we want to do. And as I said to myself at that time, I don't know what I can do, but maybe someday I can get even with this guy. And I got even with him. I beat him. <laughs> How important is it to you to get even with people? Well, I, I, always, I always think if you pick a fight, you should win it. So that's why I thought that was important. He picked the fight. He lost it. I won it. So you became the head of the Gaming Commission this time period, this is in the late 70s, right, Senator? Yeah, that's right. 77, I became chairman of the Gaming Commission. 77 to 81. My favorite story from that time, and you'll appreciate why this is my favorite story given what I used to do for a living, which is prosecute people, in particular public corruption. So you're the head of the Gaming Commission. There's a lot of corruption going around. And there was a gentleman who offered you a bribe. And rather than accept it, you did something that a lot of people we wish would do more of. You went to the FBI. Yeah, let me tell you what happened there. I was at home, and I got a call from a guy by the name of Daly, and he was a political groupie. Frankly, I didn't have much respect for him, but he called me, and I just didn't think the call sounded right. Arrangements were made that I would accept this bribe. The key word was, is this the money? When I said that, the FBI was to come in and arrest everybody. But I said, is this the money? And these bandits had locked the door behind them. Finally, they got around and opened the door, and the FBI came in. And uh, I was so mad at that time. It's, you know, this is not anything that I'm especially proud of, but I did it. I put, I put a chokehold on that guy that tried to bribe me. They had to pry me off him. I, his face was turning blue. I was so mad that they thought they could bribe me. And they all, they all were convicted. Part of the reason I love the story, as I mentioned, is we did a lot of public corruption prosecutions, in particular people in the legislature in New York. And I can't tell you one time that I'm aware that someone was offered a bribe and got angry, uh, so angry that they tried to choke the briber because it was an insult to the elected person's integrity. So I don't condone the chokehold, but, but I, pre- I appreciate the impulse, which is in short supply today. Well, you'd be surprised how a chokehold gets somebody's attention really fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it did. I, to those listening at home, we don't advise you you choke people who try to bribe you, but we do appreciate the indignation you feel when someone thinks that they can buy you off. And people of integrity should always feel that indignation. And we don't see it often enough, in fact. Let's fast forward a little bit to when you became a U.S. senator. How did you feel compared to winning student body president when you were in high school? My joy came when I was elected to the House of Representatives. I spent two terms in the House. But for me, having been a Capitol policeman, it was wonderful for me to be in the House office buildings that I patrolled. I was gratified. I was so, it was so much fun. I always remember those days in my, the Foreign Relations Committee, Science Technology. That's where I met my friend for life, Al Gore. When I was elected to the Senate, Having lost a race a number of years before that by 524 votes, it was, of course, remarkable for me. And then to 
serve all those years I did in the Senate. As I look back, it was uh, amazing that someone with my background and my abilities could serve that time in 30 years in the Senate and four in the House. What's the difference between serving in the House of Representatives versus the Senate? Does it feel like a promotion, like you're going to the big leagues, or does it seem like just it's a smaller group of people? Yes, but I feel anyone that has served in the House immediately becomes a better senator when they're elected because you understand the House. The House is not that easy to understand. There's 435 members. Your friendships in the House are developed with your committees. In the Senate, that's just the opposite. Certainly you do a lot of stuff with the committees, but your actual work in the Senate, a lot of it takes place on the Senate floor because there's only 99 other people. Do you think members of the House become better friends with each other than members of the Senate? No, I think it's about the same in the House. I served there only four years, but the friends I made there were no less important to me than those in the Senate. Years into his time in the Senate, my former boss and your former colleague, uh, Senator Schumer, when he worked out in the morning, didn't work out in the Senate gym. As people may know, he worked out in the House gym. Chuck Schumer and I have a great relationship, and I think it's important you know him well and you will appreciate this, perhaps more than your listeners, but maybe not. When I was elected the leader, remember that came quite, quite surprisingly because Dashiell would, no one thought Dashiell would be beaten. So I ran for leader and was elected uh, unanimously. I knew that I could not do a good job unless I had some help. And who could be more help than anybody? Chuck Schumer. That's what I was going to guess. And now Chuck and I, we knew each other, but, you know, just we weren't pals or anything like that. So I called in my office. I said, uh, Chuck, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. That's the fundraising arm of the Senate. And that's where the recruitment takes place. That was at the beginning of 2005, right? Yes. Is it important to, to work with people and build teams where the members of the team are different, have different personalities? And that's, again, where Schumer came in. I had Durbin, my whip, Schumer, head of the caucus, and Patty Murray, the secretary of the caucus. But I had Durbin, Schumer, and Murray come to my office sometimes four or five times a day because I wanted them to know what I was doing, I wanted their input and what I could do to improve it. People may not realize this, but I remember, you know, working on judiciary issues for Senator Schumer. And when I was spending time with him, you and he would speak, I think sometimes 10, I mean, in person, maybe four or five times a day on, on busy days. But sometimes you guys would talk 10, 11, 12 times, starting in early morning and ending into the evening. Landra, my wife, and Iris, his wife, <laughs> used to joke that we spent far more time together than we did with them. And the sad story is probably true. (laughs) I remember being in meetings uh, talking about a judicial nomination or a bill, a crime bill or something in the senator's office. And in the course of one meeting, there might be several phone calls between, you know, he he would stop in the middle of of a meeting and realize that he wanted to go over something with you and the meeting would stop and, and the two of you would discuss. Well, my theory in this is I think I'm right. My mentor, I've already indicated, was Michael Callahan. And he said, listen, you can buy anything you want except one thing, loyalty. You have to earn that. And I've always believed that. And that's what I've set out to do. So how does a a leader of a caucus, whether in the minority or the majority, how do you keep unity in the caucus? I had my three leaders. And I always had their support. 
How did I keep peace in the caucus? By their knowing what we were doing. Claire McCaskill, she got beat this last time. She was a wonderful senator. But somebody was interviewing her. She said, yeah, I went to Reed once and told him I wasn't going to support him. And what did I say to her? I said, Claire, I appreciate that very much. You're at least honest. Most people don't have the nerve to come and tell me that. That's kind of how I looked at things. If, uh, if someone didn't like what I was doing, tell me what I'm doing wrong. We'll see what we can do today. You talked about the friends you made, and it's nice to hear that because I guess one question people who have never served in the Congress is, do people really form genuine friendships, or is everyone always looking over their shoulder? Dick Durbin, Chuck Schumer, Patty Murray, those three people will be in my heart forever. But there are others. Pat Leahy, who's still serving in the Senate. He's approaching 80 years old. I don't know how old he is for sure. Barbara Boxer, she and I uh, always refer to her as my sister. I didn't have brothers. And one time I wrote her a letter and put a PS on it. You're the sister I never had. We still talk. So I made friendships for life uh, with senators that I've worked with. What about friendships across the aisle? Do those things happen? Yes, it, uh, of course. Uh, Richard Shelby, he and I still talk. He and I served. We had our offices next door to each other in the House when we served in the House. I think the world of him. I could go lots and lots of You know, yeah. I, I, McConnell, I have a lot of disagreements with Mitch, and he knows that. But Mitch is my friend. I had lots of friends on the Republican side. I just want to, before we get to the current day, talk about something that was a big deal in my life as a staffer. So you become the Democratic leader in 05, and there's an election in 06, and the Democrats are 10 seats down. I think it was 55-45, if I remember correctly. Not many people predicted that the Democrats would take over the Senate, that there would be a change in power, sending you to be the, the majority leader. Did, did you think you would take the Senate back in 2006? No, or either did Chuck Schumer, but we sure hope <laughs> we could. The morning after the election, it wasn't clear what the results were, and my memory may be faulty, but my recollection is that we didn't know about Virginia, George Allen versus Jim Or Washington. Webb. Remember Washington? And also Montana. I oh, think. yeah. That's and always John a Tester. cliffhanger. And, <laughs> and, and, and Tester's still hanging in there. Tester's uh, still hanging McCaskill, in there. Love the guy. McCaskill not. He's a, he's really is a farmer. He farms his farm, he and his wife. Wonderful human being. As a boy working in his dad's farm ranch, he was grinding hamburger, stuck his hand in the hamburger grinder and ground off three of his fingers. He's overcome that handicap. Most people don't even know that. He's a talented trumpeteer. At Dan Inouye's funeral, he played his trumpet. There are a number of senators already declared running for president, but you know, back in the mid-2000s, there was a gentleman who showed up with a lot of uh, flair and with a lot of people talking, named Barack Obama. What did you think back then? Well, you should talk to Barack Obama about that, but <laughs> as everybody knows now, when he was reelected, his staff called me and said, the president wants to talk to you as soon as he gets off of his delivering his acceptance speech. And he told me, I would never be president but for you. You're the one that gave me the idea that I could do it. How did you give him the idea? I called him into my office, and I said, uh, I think this is something that you could do. You, could, you should consider running for president. I laid out the reasons why I thought that he could do it, and I was right. Do you encourage young people to sort of um, 
as some of the older people would sometimes say, not wait their turn, jump ahead in line, you know, all those kinds of phrases that people use, especially in a Senate system that's mostly based on seniority. You don't get to become a chair of a committee until the other people have died off. I, th- I think that uh, people should run when they want to. You run for office when you have it in your heart and your gut to do it. And I, that's why I sometimes uh, look with chagrin at people. Well, I don't know if I can raise the money. I don't know if I can win this district. I don't know. I don't, I, if you want to run, think it over. If you got the desire to run, go ahead and run. So when all these candidates are running now, we have, could have as many as 25 Democrats running. And I'm very fortunate. Right. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of them, meet with some of them. And I think that the election process is good. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a hotly contested primary. Do you have any view of this newly elected member of Congress who is getting a lot of attention for her ideas? Is that Kamala Harris you're talking about? I was going to know. We'll we'll get to Kamala. I was going to say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Well, uh, she's getting some attention. But remember, the Democratic caucus in the House is not a caucus that's way to the left. The reason they have the heavy majority they do is a lot of Democrats won those Republican districts, and they have to get reelected. And I've served with a lot of people who are good, but nobody better than Nancy Pelosi. She understands that. So the Democratic caucus in the House is not far to the left. It's a centrist caucus, in my opinion. So what's the role for the people who are more on the left? Well, the role is what we always find. Take someone, and I don't compare her at all to Bernie Sanders. They're two different people, different ideas. Bernie Sanders was good for the caucus. Not everyone was out where he was. Most everyone was more centrist. But the ideas he developed became part of what at one time was his idea. Now it's the centrist idea. So there's nothing wrong with that. Do you have any view on who is among the top-tier strongest people running for president oh. right now or likely will run for president? You mentioned Kamala Harris a second ago. I, ha- I have not seen or talked to one of them yet that I find would not make a good president. I mean, I'm impressed with the, the field of candidates. I'm glad. And my only, and I tell every one of them this, that ask my opinion, do not run your campaign telling everybody how bad Donald Trump is. Democrats and independents know that. Forget about how bad he is. You need to have a program that will show how good you're going to be in working on poverty, working on maintaining a strong, secure America, having a foreign service State Department that is a credit to the world that we have to be part of the international community. Uh, So anyway, there's a lot of things that they need to talk about, and it's not how bad Trump is. And I agree with you. I think that's actually a very important point. But I guess the question is, given how dominant Trump is every day in the news cycle, multiple news cycles a day, and the taunting he will do and the attacking he will do and the tweeting he will do, how do you present your positive vision without getting sucked into the mud? First of all, understand right now Donald Trump at best would get about 26% of the vote, less than 30%, because he gets all the Republicans, heavy Republicans, but he loses almost all the independents, almost all the independents, and, of course, all the Democrats. So 
I think that there's a wide, fertile ground out there for a Democratic nominee to ignore Trump and just talk about what America is, not how great it can become, not how great it was, but how great it is. You once said that Trump is not immoral, he's amoral. He's amoral. What did you mean by that? I'm very happy I came up with that word because that day, the Webster Dictionary folks got a 4,300% increase in people asking what the word meant. Putting aside the dictionary, the dictionary definition, what, did, what do you mean by that? Why amoral is you or not? You know, if someone is immoral, they're doing things they know to be wrong. You cheat on your wife, you steal from somebody, that's immoral, that's immorality. But someone who is amoral can cheat on their wife, steal a few bucks here and there, they have no conscience. And he has no conscience. So if you think he's amoral, until there's a change, let's say that might happen in two years, but over the next two years, what is your greatest concern for the country and how it's performing? I was originally uh, concerned about our country. I'm concerned about the world. This man is a disaster for American foreign policy, which has spent 70 years developing. We now have European nations talking about coming up with their own armies because Trump wants to get out of NATO. He's frightened everybody. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not worried anymore about America only. I'm worried about the world. Are you worried about the rule of law in this country? Or do you think that the intelligence agencies and the law you know, enforcement it's, agencies... It's, it's beyond laughable. Journalists have tried to determine how many times Trump has lied since he became president. Now remember... That's just a little over two years. The last count was near 10,000. 10,000 lies, not exaggeration, lies. That's what we have to deal with. It's, it's amazing that he can have his intelligence folks testify under oath in a congressional hearing, and this man says, all you have to do is call them. They, were, they said that they were misquoted. Millions of people are watching him testify. I think you served in the Congress during the course of five different presidents. Was there one that was most difficult to deal with and one that was most easy to deal with? You know, I look back at all the many fights I had with Bush number two. Oh, do I wish we had him now compared to what we have. Um, <laughs> you I, never know what you're going to get. Well, I mean, I feel close to President Carter. He was so smart. He was interested in, as uh, Moyer said on TV one night, comparing him to uh, Reagan, he said Carter was down there trying to understand what was wrong with the engines. They weren't firing quite right, and he was down in the engine room. All Reagan did, he was up at the helm all the time. He never went anyplace else. How do you think people will look at the Obama presidency years from now? Oh, I think the Obama presidency is going to go down in history as one of the best. I had the good fortune of being his quarterback during that time, legislatively, and I have nothing but admiration for his morality, his mental acuity, and his basic being, uh, I don't know if he's a genius, but he's a, uh, he was a fairly new senator, and he had given a speech there on the Senate floor, and we went out into a caucus so nobody, no one else was talking. He was still sitting at his desk. I walked over to him, and I said, 
Brooke, that was such a sensational delivery. And he looked up at me, and as I say in my book, with no boastfulness, no braggadocio, he simply looked up at me and said, I have a gift. And he has a gift, a gift of communication. You need look no further than before he became a senator. He wrote two best-selling books. He can write. He can speak. He has a gift of communication. And he will go down as one of America's really, really good presidents. So do you think when Obama said he had a gift and just acknowledged that he had this natural gift, that that was a modest statement? Oh, it, 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 yes, it absolutely was. And I've said that every time, every time I've told, retold that story, I hope I convey the fact that it was done in modesty. Now, I also think right. that uh, one of the presidents I served under was just so terrific. And had he not had the problem with Lewinsky, he would go down as one of America's top three presidents. Look at what he did. That balanced budget deficit reduction act, which put America on a road to financial, I should say, economic vitality for longer than any time in the history of the country. He did that without a single Republican vote. Gore had to break the tie. A great president. Great president. Did you ever have a time when you were in the Oval Office, and you've been in the Oval Office with many different people, as we've discussed, as president, where you had to be firm or talk back or express anger or irritation or upsetness in some way? We've all watched the performance of Trump with Pelosi and Schumer. Yeah. I went to many, many meetings in the Oval Office. They were all dignified. The president had an agenda. He went over the agenda with us, never left with our, without asking us how we felt about what he was doing. So my memories of the Oval Office were really good. I especially liked Obama because he always had apples there, and I always take one with me. <laughs> to borrow the old phrase from some of the mob movies, it was always business, not personal. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, and... and uh, Nancy Pelosi, who I admire immensely, and I sh I'm confident I don't know, but I assume she did the same as I did. If I had something with the president that I just thought was wrong, I would just call him and talk to him about it or say, you mind if I spend a few minutes with you after this? You know, I've done that a few times, but I would never bring up in the Oval Office something to challenge his dignity. Do you have any major regret, legislatively or otherwise, during your career? Well, the answer is, the number one is I voted for the Iraq War. Now, I determined very quickly I was wrong, and I certainly did plenty to rectify, but that was my biggest mistake that I made. I was taken in by Colin Powell's presentation. I believe yellow cake and all that stuff was no foundation to it. So that's my biggest... Um, mistake. I, Is there something you're, you're most proud of? No, I don't I don't like to do that. I think I, <laughs> somebody else have to do that. I, I did the best I could with the tools I had. Can I ask about some senators who I think you didn't mention? Sure. And just ask you to give an impression of what they were like or your relationship with them, okay. what it was like working with them. Bob Dole. I have a lot of memories of Bob Dole. He never was mean to me. He could be pretty damn tough if you got in where he didn't think you should be in. That is to procedural in the Senate. 
But here's my fondest memory of Bob Doe. I got a call from him, and he said, I want you to go to the rotunda with me to see Danny. That's Danny anyway, okay? So we're there, very small number of people. And we get to the rotunda. There's a little alcove there, and he said, um, stop. He said, Danny, Danny's not going to see me in a wheelchair. And he, with some help, was taken over to the beer where the casket was of Dan Inouye. And he saluted him with his only arm he could move. Now that was something that was a tearful time for me. That was tearful. Yeah. Uh, Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch was uh, good to me. He's a fellow Mormon, and he would always tell everybody, he said, I know you're too liberal to be a Mormon, but you seem to be pretty good to me. He helped me get judges uh, when no one else could get judges. Um, I was happy to have done that. He did it for me. How about Arlen Specter? Arlen Specter and I had a good relationship. As you know, I was one of those that helped him switch parties late in his career. He was a tough guy to deal with. He was nobody's fool. How about Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz is... Um, I don't dislike Ted Cruz. I do hope he gets beaten running for the Senate. <laughs> right. Yeah. I read that you had a conversation. You talked with Senator McCain before he passed away. What did you talk about? Well, John and I had a long history. We came to the House together in 1982. We came to the Senate together together in 1986. And John was no shrinking violet. Oh, he was. He would get mad at me. He'd come over and... Uh, I'm going to campaign against you and all that kind of stuff. And in Nevada, that would have hurt me. I don't think he ever did it that I remember, but he threatened me. So we had so many wonderful conversations. Told him, I said, John, I think you'll probably remember this. I said, I gave a speech, and I could see over there. I knew you were coming to get me. And he walked over there, and um, he said, you know what I'm going to do, don't you? He said, yeah, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. I said, well, <laughs> if the role were reversed, I would do the same thing. And we joked about that because that's true. We, but we did such good things together. This may sound not very important to anybody, but it was important to me. We had a big new multi, I don't know how many, hundreds of millions of dollars it cost, a new bridge across the Colorado River because a dam was thought to be a terrorist uh, target and we need a new bridge over that, that to make that safer. And so we appropriated the money and built that beautiful bridge. So I wanted to name it after my mentor, Michael Callahan. And I was the leader at the time. I probably could have gotten it done because it would have been embarrassing for anybody to oppose this uh, legend in Nevada. But I thought, well, I'm going to make it easier. So I went over to McCain and I said, hey, John, O'Callahan, you know him. He's going to be, I'm going to put his name on the bridge. Why don't we make it easy? We'll put Pat Tillman on it. So we'll call it the O'Callaghan Tillman Bridge. That was done in probably uh, legislative time, maybe a minute. We got it done that quickly. When he got sick, I talked to him. I, I hesitated calling him. I called and woman answered the phone. I said, um, could I leave you a message for Senator McCain? She said, who is it? I said, Senator Reed. She said, well, why don't you just talk to him? So that was the beginning of a number of calls that John and I had, as he was dying, you know, it took a long time for him to die. But we had good times. We 
laughed and shed some tears. Another late senator who was a force to be reckoned with in that body was Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, who had a relationship and a friendship with John McCain, and especially on immigration. And that's one of the issues that I worked on when I was a staffer. What did you make of that friendship, that across-the-aisle friendship? I'm in my office here in the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. I look up here. There's something that I have kept for, oh, man, it's 50 years, okay? It's a letter from President Kennedy to me. It's written. He had not been inaugurated. He had been elected. He wrote it to me. I was a student at Utah State University. I formed the first Young Democrats Club there. And uh, he sent me a letter. And Ted Kennedy, he looked at that letter. It was in in the Capitol reception area. And he looked at that letter. He always told me, and that's his signature. He wanted to make sure that I knew it wasn't an auto pen or something like that. So Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, people don't realize, he had this booming voice. And he was a very famous man. But he always took the time, I'm sure with others, as he did with me, to write me these letters. I call them love letters. I did something decent that he liked, and he always would write me a letter. A memorable man. Um, He was a man who saw such tragedy in his personal life, the life of his family, and out of it he still had this huge heart for public service. And um, I can remember at one of my caucuses, I used to have senators come and um, spend five minutes telling about themselves. You'd be surprised we spend a lot of time together, but we really don't know each other personally. And uh, Evan Bai got up and talked about his experiences, and he finished, and Ted Kennedy stood and said, what you didn't tell him is your dad saved my life. That plane crash they were in where Ted is, Ted was always infirm till the day he died because of that plane crash. He said, your dad pulled me out of a burning airplane and saved my life. When you think about your time in the Senate and in the House, do you have fondest memories? My fondest memory is uh, being in the majority leader's office, the Democratic leader's office, sitting there alone, as I was lots of time, was alone lots of time. But there were occasions when I just sat there, and these are my memories that I will always have. I couldn't put out of my mind how great America is. Why? Because if a guy like Harry Reid can make it, anybody can make it. Anybody could make it. And so that's my thought. Here I was in that office, and I'd come from what I came from. Can I push you on something since you say that? Sure. You know, you said in this interview, and you have said before, I'll quote you, you know, I I know my limitations. I haven't gotten where I am by my good looks, my athletic ability, my great brain, my oratorical skills. And yet, look what you did. You have to attribute that to something. What is it? I've thought about that. The only thing I can say is I really appreciated people being nice to me from the time I was a a boy. And I just always tried to be nice to people. And maybe that helped. And also, something else I think that I haven't said 
and this very publicly, I always felt one of my strong suits. I was able to tell people no. That's hard. But people admire you for being able to tell people no. And I think that's one reason my caucus appreciated me, one reason, because I didn't play games with people. I would tell them, no, I can't help you with this. But I was willing to do, go the extra mile on occasion when I thought it was good for, the, good for the team, so to speak. I don't know, and it doesn't hurt to remind you of this. I doubt, I don't doubt it. It never happened in the history of the Senate where anyone did what I did. You may remember we were tied. 50-50. We had a Republican president, so Republican president, that meant that the Republicans controlled the Senate. So I talked to Jim Jeffers from Vermont. I knew he was unhappy. I never talked to him privately. It was always on the Senate floor. And one night I went to Daschle, who was the leader, Democratic leader, and I said, Tom, I got a meeting in the morning with Jeffers. I think you should come to it. Tom said, I got another breakfast meeting. I said, well, you better come with this one. I'm going to try to get him to switch parties. He came to that meeting, and I said, here's the deal I'm going to make you, Jim. I'm chairman of the Environment Public Works Committee. I have a staff of about 15. You switch parties, you become the chairman, you keep my chairman of that committee, which I know you would love, and you have my staff, all of them. I don't keep anybody. That switched the majority in the Senate, and as I said, I don't think anyone's ever done anything like that before. But that's what teamwork's all about. Yeah, no, that's extraordinary. Let me end with, with this. When you think about the country and you think about what is possible in the country, and if from time to time you say a prayer for the country, what would that prayer be? That the American people would realize how fortunate they are that we have this democracy that is not going to exist forever just because we want it to. It's going to exist for the foreseeable future and the future after that if we work to make it the good country that it is now. I don't like people going out saying, let's make America great again. I don't like that. America is great right now. Our goal, my goal, is to make America, keep America great as it is now. Senator Reid, let me just say, it's been an honor to talk to you, having been a fly on the wall 15 years ago, 14 years ago, and watching you work with so many other senators in that very special place that I was in awe of every day I served there, even though I'll probably never go back. I, I appreciate your time. Well, really it Thank would you, be good if everyone that do these, does these podcasts had the reputation that you have. Your, well, thank, your thank uh, you. reputation is irreproachable. Everybody thinks the world of you intellectually and simply just being a nice person. Thank you, Senator. That's very kind of, kind of you. Take care. Thank you a lot. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, former Senator Harry Reid. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. 
and the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.